So we start this morning in the same place we started last week. The disciples came to Jesus on this day and they had noticed something different about the way Jesus was teaching the crowds. They came to Jesus and asked him in chapter 13, verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? The them there being the crowds. See, these disciples had recognized this dramatic and marked shift in the teaching style employed by Jesus. See, in the earlier stages of his ministry, Jesus spoke with perfect clarity. He spoke with zero ambiguity and in nothing that could even begin to look like a riddle. Jesus preached plainly, he preached clearly, he preached directly, and on this day, however, as recorded in Matthew 13, something, something happened, something changed, because instead of direct or exhortations to the crowds and to the Pharisees and to anyone listening, instead of direct exhortations to repent and believe, Jesus spoke, Jesus rattled off seven parables in succession. As Matthew said in verse 34, of chapter 13, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And that little phrase, he said here, means he said and he kept on saying. He said and he kept on saying nothing to them without a parable. And so the answer that Jesus gives to the, to the disciples in chapter 13, verse 10 and forward, or to the question they ask, the reason for this shift from clear, direct preaching and teaching to a more cryptic, parable sort of preaching and teaching was repre represented a divine judgment of the Lord against the hardened hearts, against the stiff necks, against the rebellious dispositions of the, rebellious, of the religious leaders, and a divine judgment against the crowds who simply refused to follow Jesus as repentant disciples. You see, the, disciples, the, the, the crowds were following Jesus around to be sure. They all wanted to hear his teaching and they all wanted to benefit from his healings and from his miracles, but they weren't following him because they wanted to repent and believe and give their lives over to him. For an example of this would be after Jesus fed the 5,000 with two small fish and five loaves. Jesus saw these crowds following him all over. They even tried to make him king, the apostle John tells us. But was that because they had repented and believed in him? No, Jesus makes it clear as he looks at the crowds and he says, you are seeking me and you are following me because you have eaten your fill of the loaves. Meaning, the crowds thought of Jesus as simply as, as their meal ticket. He was giving them all sorts of wonderful things. I mean, who doesn't want to follow a man around if he's going to heal you of all your sicknesses, right? Who doesn't want to follow someone around if when you're hungry, he keeps giving you bread? And so they followed Jesus around for this reason, but not to repent, not to give their lives over to him, not to become real disciples. And so for that reason also, Jesus shifted his teaching style to parables. And it's understandable, right, on this day, given everything that's happened. I mean, if you just look back at Matthew 12 and 13, you see that this has been a, a relatively packed day. A lot has, has gone on on this day. Earlier, Jesus had healed a man with a withered or a paralyzed hand in the synagogue. But instead, even in the face of such a clear, pronounced, obvious miracle, instead of like looking at Jesus and saying, we believe, instead of setting out to consider whether Jesus is in fact the Messiah, instead of consulting the scriptures to see if this is actually something messianic, Instead of even just thinking, perhaps this is the son of David, maybe this is our Messiah. Instead of thinking, perhaps Jesus is who he said he is, they were upset. Why? Because he had embarrassed them and had violated their man-made list of rules and traditions, their list of do's and don'ts that, things were that were appropriate and or inappropriate on the Sabbath. And after Jesus had healed this man... What did they go do? Verse 14 tells us they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And immediately after healing the man of the, in the synagogue, verse 22 tells us a demon in chapter 12, a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. 
Now, the crowds witnessed this miracle, and sure, they saw this miracle. They saw with their eyes this display of God's empowerment, this display of God's presence in the ministry of Jesus. This miracle astonished the crowds, so much so that they were beside themselves with amazement. But while the crowds were beside themselves in amazement, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they slunk around and meandered through the crowds and spread the most wicked and blasphemous lie anyone has ever spread about the Lord Jesus Christ in the history of humankind. You see that in 1224 when they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. These religious leaders revealed their hardened and impenetrable state and condition of their hearts. As the seed of the good news of Jesus, the the good seed of repentance and return to God, cast in their direction, simply bounced off the thick and impervious and unyielding soil that is the path of their hearts, as we see in Jesus' parable before this one. The religious leaders were the ones Jesus was speaking about when he said in 1319, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. This deep-seated and irrational hatred for Jesus, this absurd and illogical rebellion against the clarion call to repentance and faith led the religious leaders not to actually listen, but to harden their hearts even more, to stop up their ears, to close their eyes. And this response resulted in the transition of Jesus from clear, direct teaching to parables. This was the reason for his clear calls to repentance and return to the Lord, moving to saying nothing to them without a parable. It's a terrible judgment against these crowds and these religious leaders. A terrible judgment against those who had witnessed the works of Jesus with their own eyes and heard the teachings of Jesus with their own ears and yet refused to repent. So this was the answer that Jesus gave to the disciples when they directly asked him this question. Why do you, why do you speak in parables? And in Matthew chapter, or verses 34 and 35 of our text this morning, we see Jesus or Matthew reveal a second reason why Jesus spoke in parables. You read it. Jesus taught in parables to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet in verse 35. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So here you see Matthew kind of balancing the prophetic word that he referenced from Isaiah earlier on. In Matthew 13, 13 to 15, he brings up a prophetic word from Isaiah, and Jesus made clear that one of the purposes for speaking in parables there was to conceal the message from those who have closed their eyes to hearing the message. To conceal the message from those who have hardened their hearts to the gospel of the kingdom. And here, in 34 and 35, Jesus reveals that the prophetic word of Asaph, he calls forward the prophetic word of Asaph from Psalm 78, another purpose for preaching in parables is to set forth or to reveal. So in the first one, it's to conceal, and in this one, it is to reveal the truth to those who have hearts open to hear it. Listen to the larger context of Psalm 78, which is what is quoted here in verse 35. Asaph writes, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. So you see here, Asaph, by God's inspiration, divulged in both psalm and in parable truths hidden from the eyes of many in his own day. And now, in like manner, Jesus, the Son of God, has come exposing to the peoples the mystery of the kingdom, mysteries of the kingdom, mysteries hidden since the foundation of the world. The parables Jesus spoke illustrated to those with ears to hear and with eyes to see the nature of the kingdom of God. So this is one reason that Matthew uses this psalm, but there's also a much simpler point to it as well. And that simpler point is this. The use of parables by Jesus was prophesied in Scripture long before he started using them. 
This ministry of concealing to the hard-hearted and revealing to the broken in spirit is taking place exactly as God had planned that it would take place. It is is occurring exactly as God had planned since the foundation of the world. And so the first parable we looked at last week, right? The parable of the soils. That was the first parable spoken on this day. And there, Jesus explained to the disciples the meaning of that parable. Four different receptions that one can expect when calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Because as the disciples watched Jesus minister, as they watched him preach to the Pharisees and the crowds, but also noted the responses that Jesus was garnering from those crowds and those Pharisees, as they watched the crowds and they watched the religious leaders reject Jesus and even go so far as to accuse him of being in league with Satan, they must have wondered, how is it that this could come to pass? How is it that Israel, who has been waiting for their Messiah for centuries, now when he is here, rejects him? How can that be? And so Jesus answered them in a parable. The response to the gospel will be fourfold. Some will be like soil on the path, so hard and packed down that the seed of the gospel will simply bounce off that heart, rest on the top, and be trampled on by passers-by or swallowed up by the birds. Some will be like soil with rocks that keep the roots shallow. These might hear and receive the good news, but without any real connection to Jesus, without any roots that go down deep enough to connect to the vine and draw the life-giving water that is required for real salvation, they fall away or they renounce that profession of faith that they once received when trial or persecution arises as a result of that faith. Some will be like thorny soil. They'll hear the words and they'll perhaps receive it just like the rocky soil did, only to be choked by the cares of the world and by the deceitfulness of riches, thereby proving an unfruitful and false convert. But then others will be like good soil that hear the word, understand the word, truly believe the word, and these will indeed bear fruit in keeping with their true and real faith. So after hearing that parable and hearing the explanation, the question then would arise, well, what ultimately becomes of the good soil? What ultimately becomes of the soils that are the path or the rocky soil or the thorny soil? You can imagine the disciples looking at Jesus and saying, how is it that you, Messiah, are here And those that are rejecting you with such clear and terrible pronouncements of of who you are and what you are doing, how is it that they still live and breathe among us? Aren't you, Messiah, supposed to destroy and subject and subdue and terminate and eliminate all those who stand against you when you come? All those who refuse to submit to your rule, aren't they supposed to be destroyed, Messiah? I mean, we have believed that you would bring our subjection to foreign powers to a complete and total end, wiping them all out while ruling over Israel from your throne in Jerusalem. Why is that not happening? How can it be that the soil on the path and the soil that has rocks in it and the soil filled with thorns, how can it be that they're still here among us? Ultimately, As Jesus will clarify in the parable that we are looking at this morning, he will reveal that their misunderstanding comes down to timing. The Messiah will indeed wipe the earth's slate clean. He declared as much through the prophets in the Old Testament, an example being Zephaniah chapter 1. We read this, the word of the Lord through Zephaniah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble of the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. So you see, There is coming a day when the ungodly will be wiped away, when the idolaters that live on this earth right now will be dealt with, when all who reject and turn away from the Lord will face the wrath of the Lord. There is a day coming, as Zephaniah continued, 
in chapter 1. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind." So that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on that day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So the call of the Lord through Zephaniah as he speaks these words to the people, is this. Knowing that all of this is going to come to pass, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness and seek humility. Now the disciples are right when they read this and they understand that there is coming a day when the Lord is going to do some, some cleansing and some, some pretty terrible work on the earth. But it won't happen on this day text tells us that it'll happen at the end of the age, not at the beginning. At the end of the age, the Lord will wipe away every rebel. The Lord will eliminate all unfruitful soils, but not before. And this is a question, right, that has vexed the righteous throughout the centuries. How is it the wicked succeed in this world while the righteous suffer? In Psalm 72, the same Asaph quoted earlier speaks to this very issue, saying, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. And when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I made the Lord God my refuge. And even in our own day, right? It's not uncommon to look around or to hear people wondering and crying out, how is it that the evil and the wickedness that is practiced throughout our world doesn't meet with some sort of immediate judgment from the Lord? Why is it that evil men are permitted to live on earth causing trouble, distressing, hounding, and tormenting the righteous? How is it that we live in a world where tyrants and despots can rise to positions of authority and then use that power to steal and to kill and to destroy righteous men and women all over the world? How is it that we live in a world filled with people so committed to getting ahead on, at all costs that even if it means division and even if it means hostility and even if it means treading other people underfoot, how is it that we live in a world where even the church, even the visible church is filled with rocky and thorny soils in a world where, the, where people work from the outside to overthrow the church, where people work from the inside to eliminate or root up the church? Why let the wicked go on rebelling against you? Why let the wicked continue to create new idols to bow down to? Why let the wicked strive to force the righteous to bow down to their idols along with them? Why, not, why suffer these wicked who make the world increasingly difficult and increasingly antagonize those who seek to love and serve you, Lord Jesus? I mean, we say it all the time, right? As we look out into the world and we look out at its sinfulness, I've heard some of us say it. Come, Lord Jesus. There are moments when we look out at the world and we recognize this is going, seemingly going off the rails, right? And we cry out for the return of the Lord, that he would come and he would deal with it. Why must the righteous live with the wicked? 
Why must the righteous live with those who are bent on rebellion against the Lord and his people? And this was the view that the, the disciples might have had at this time. Messiah, why not eliminate them? Why not root them up? Why not destroy the evildoers now? So to clear up the misunderstanding of the disciples, Jesus told this parable, building on the last one. And notice again, it says he spoke the parable to all standing on the beach, and they were listening, but he let it hang there. You notice he didn't give anyone an, a, 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 an explanation of this parable, only the disciples when they came to him and asked. And so Jesus begins, listen to the parable again in verse 25. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So Jesus here begins this parable by saying, here's what the kingdom of heaven might be compared to. Here's what the kingdom of heaven is similar to. The kingdom of heaven is, is, resembles this scenario. And the kingdom of heaven here means the rule and the reign and the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. It can be compared to this situation. A man went out and he sowed seed, good seed, in his field. Now, this is, this is a, a pretty common, uh, accessible, everyday experience. It would be like starting uh, a story by saying, uh, a man hopped in his car and started driving down the street. Like we, a person. A person got into their car and started driving down the street. Now, all of us could identify with that if you've got your license. If not, don't worry, you'll get it soon. It's okay, right? But if you've got your license, you, it's pretty easy. Many in the crowd probably even owned a field. And none of them, if they were trying to feed their families or to support and provide for their needs, would ever consider sowing anything other than good seed in their field. The best seed. The best seed they could get their hands on. And like them... This man, in the parable, went out and sowed good seed in his field. And after a good, solid day's work, those that the master left to tend the field went to bed and went to sleep. And as they slept, an enemy of the owner came and secretly sabotaged the work of the master. They secretly sabotaged the field by sowing bad seed, by scattering seeds, uh, weed seeds among the wheat. Now, just as an aside, this parable is not casting judgment on the poor sleeping workers, but is illustrating the fact that the enemy of the master waits for the opportune times to spoil his field. And this practice was actually quite common among landowners in this day. It was something they would have completely understood as business competitors and enemies and spiteful neighbors committed such acts of vandalism on each other's fields all the time. It was common enough that the Romans enacted laws against the practice of ruining another's field by sowing weed seeds in their field. And this weed that we see sown in the field, it's widely accepted that the, by commentators in everything I looked at, that they are likely something called darnel. Darnel was a weed that looks very much like wheat, almost exactly to the same as wheat, until the harvest time comes and the grain heads from the real wheat reveal their grain. It's only when the heads of wheat mature that it becomes clear which is wheat, which is not, or which is weeds. And so in this parable, the servants, they go out and they examine the field when the, wheat, when the plants had come up and the, wheats, the heads of wheat had started to bear their grain. And to their surprise, they saw an outrageous amount or an outrageous quantity of weeds along with the wheat. Now, if you're a gardener or a green thumb or a farmer, you know that there's going to be some level of weeds in any field you plant. And if this had been just some regular amount of weeds in the field, there would have been no need or no urgency from these 
servants to run to the master and, and spread the news. But when the servants came to the field and they observed the sheer number, the sheer volume of weeds growing among the wheat, they quickly ran to notify the master of the house. They knew the master had planted good seed, and so they were shocked and they were confused by this field that had become seemingly overrun by weeds. And the master knew straight away what happened. An enemy has come and sown weeds in the field. And the servants, as helpful as they are, eagerly asked if they should go and gather up. <laughs> that has got to be the best ringtone ever. Could you imagine if we were preaching uh, Peter rejecting Jesus, right? That would have been great. <laughs> Three times the rooster will crow. <laughs> All right, let me go back here a second. The eager servants ask if they should go and root out the weeds that are in the field. But the master, not wanting or willing to see any of the wheat rooted up or out in the process, told them, no, wait for the harvest. Let the wheat and the weeds grow together until it's crystal clear which in the field, which in the entirety of the field, are wheat and which are weeds. And listen, when the time for the harvest comes, servants, it's not you that I'm sending out there. I'll send out the more experienced grain harvesters. I'm going to send out the specialists. I'm going to send out the reapers. It's these that the master will command first to gather up the weeds into bundles and to throw them into the fire because they are useless and worthless. And he will also tell the reapers to gather up the wheat and bring it into his barn. Now, a parable like this is such that the crowds could understand the scenario with little to no explanation. Yeah, a guy went into his, uh, his field, he sowed good seed, some weeds got into the seed because some enemy planted them there. I got it, that's a great story. They could grasp the illustration on a superficial level, but the deeper meaning and the deeper spiritual significance of the parable was concealed from the proud and revealed to the disciples. Now look, when they come to Jesus in verse 36, they say this to him, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Now isn't that interesting? Of all the things you could hone in on as you are asking Jesus to explain this parable to you, they hone in on the weeds. As if to ask, why would the owner of the field let the weeds grow with the wheat? Why would, not, why would the owner not let the servants go out and immediately start pulling those weeds out so that the wheat might grow unhindered? These are legitimate questions. And so Jesus explains. He takes the time to explain this parable to them, revealing a number of different characters representing someone or something else, all of which point to a great, greater spiritual significance that he kind of summarizes at the end of the explanation. So the first thing he says in his explanation of the parable is this. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, verse 37. The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God who took on flesh, who became human. He truly is a Son of Man. And why did Jesus do this? He did this to seek and to save the lost. He did this to bring about the salvation of every single person who would turn to him in faith and repentance. This Lord Jesus is the one who sows good seed or sows the sons of the kingdom into his field. Second, he said, the field is the world. The field into which both the weeds and the wheat grow or are sown is the world that we live in. Now, there is some discussion as to what this means or to whom this applies. There are two major schools of thought as to what is happening here with this explanation. And the first is held by no less a luminary than Dr. John MacArthur, who suggests that this parable speaks of Jesus and by extension all of his children who preach and who teach and who proclaim and speak the gospel, who sow the seed of the kingdom in the world, that seed sown results in a good crop of saved souls as the seed received and truly believed in by the good soil 
issues in the mercy of forgiveness as people are called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And as these sons of the kingdom are revealed, Satan, the devil, tirelessly labors to tear down, to halt, to stunt, to hinder, to thwart the growth of the kingdom by planting tares among the wheat in the world, sending forth children of the domain of the devil to strive against the children of the kingdom of heaven. The second major interpretation of this text is held by such luminaries as the early church father Augustine and more recently Dr. R.C. Sproul, who suggests that the parable, the explanation of this parable presents a warning to everyone who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and populates the pews or these nice comfortable seats in a church. Who, who sit in these chairs each week, who sing the songs each week, who pray the prayers each week, who listen to the sermons each week, who know how to speak the Christian lingo, Christianese, eat with, when you're with people, but they aren't truly saved. They aren't truly citizens of the kingdom of God because they have not truly bowed their knee to the king of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that this is the... Um, our suggestion of Dr. Sproul is because in verse 41 you see the word kingdom being used there. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. It would seem to me that the parable speaks to both, right? The two ideas are true. Satan strives against the growth of the kingdom of Christ in the world, which by extension means he strives against and seeks to tear down the church in the world in the process, from the inside as well as from the outside. So there's the, the one who sows the seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and third, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The good seed in the parable are believers, those who trust Christ for the forgiveness of sin. The good seed are all who have bowed their knee to King Jesus, who've heard the gospel, responded to the good news of salvation by grace through faith, and those upon whom the Lord has poured out wave upon wave of his grace. Those who, like the Apostle Paul, know that this saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. If you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is you. You are a son or a daughter of the kingdom. Fourth, the weeds are the sons of the evil one. The sons of the evil one are all unbelievers. All those who, because they do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, are under the control of the enemy, who are blinded to the knowledge of the truth. There are a number of times when people are called sons of the devil, in Scripture, Jesus called the Pharisees sons of the evil one, for example, in John chapter 8, when he said this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Also, Elymas the magician, a Jewish false prophet who opposed the Apostle Paul and Barnabas in their efforts to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and who also sought to turn the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus away from the faith was severely rebuked by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13, verse 10. And the Apostle Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at Elymas and said this to him, You son of the devil... You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And the Apostle John also described the sons of the evil one in his first letter, saying this in chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So you see, the sons of the evil one are found in these texts among religious leaders. They are found among false prophets who speak to the people. They are found among those who profess Christ but don't practice um, righteousness or love their brothers in the faith. That's, that's inside the church or connected with religion, connected with the Christian faith. 
but it also represents all who reject Jesus in the world. It represents every human being trapped under a false belief system, trapped under another religion, atheists, agnostics, anyone, everyone, all who are not born again by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. All of them, every single human being who is not a son of the kingdom is a son of the evil one. And while these might not know it, Satan's agenda, the agenda of their father, is the destruction of the godly, is the tearing down of the church. And if you are an unbeliever, this is you. You might not know it, but you are either actively or passively a participant in the wicked designs of Satan himself. And why do these sons of the evil one work so hard to destroy the wheat? Why do they strive to hinder the kingdom either knowingly or unknowingly? It's because of what Jesus said next. Fifth, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Children take after their father. And the evil one's entire goal and aim in creation, according to Jesus in John 10.10, is to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's Satan's ultimate aim and purpose for every single one of you. That's his ultimate aim and purpose for me, to destroy us by ensuring that we reject Jesus unto death, that we ascribe to false worldviews, that we bow down to the idols of the world. This is what Satan is relentlessly laboring to bring about in your life. Why? Because he wants to see you sent to hell for eternity. Sixth, verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age, meaning it's the completion or the conclusion or the consummation of this present period or state. And seventh, Verse 39 also, the reapers are the angels. Those angels that are dispatched by the Lord Jesus to gather out the weeds from the wheat and to gather in the wheat to the master's barn. Now, I want you to notice something here. Who is sent out to root up the weeds? It's the reapers or the angels at the end of the age who execute the gathering up of the weeds. And this bit of information right here ought to impact how we live as the people of Christ in the world right now. One doesn't have to look far, right, to see a professing Christian who believes and who loves and who salivates at their self-prescribed or self-ascribed role of being a judge and condemner of all who don't agree with every jot and tittle of their doctrine and theology. Now we know spiritual people are indeed called to restore fellow Christians who are caught in sin, but we are called to do so in a spirit of gentleness. And while we do so, we must keep watch over ourselves that we don't sin in our efforts to bring them out of sin. Look at Galatians 6.1. And we also know that the Lord has appointed leaders in this church to pay careful attention to ourselves and the flock, to care for the church of God, to be on guard and alert against those who speak twisted things in the church for the purpose of drawing sheep away. Now, when you read that, that's in Acts chapter 19, you will feel a pathos or a passion in the Apostle Paul in these texts. He's not going out and trying to root up weeds and, and harm people or be punitive against people. No, he isn't experiencing some weird pleasure in his condemnation of the fierce wolves who are working their way into the church. No, he is focused on the unceasing admonishment of the church with eyes that are blurred by tears in Acts 19.31. So you get these, these types who feel like it's their job to root up those who they think are weeds in the church. And they gain some sort of weird satisfaction from it. But there are also professing Christians who seem to exhibit some odd and sick level of satisfaction, who believe themselves to be heroic because they call out and condemn the sins and the failures of others, whether those be the sons of the kingdom or the evil in the world. There is some pharisaical pleasure, isn't there? 
that we get from condemning others and making ourselves feel better in the process. There is some sort of like fleshly, something that happens in our flesh that we kind of enjoy when we speak with tones of retribution against the world. And yet, I hear this kind of talk all the time, but it always stops short of holding out the gracious offer of reconciliation to God by grace through faith in Christ. Our default is to speak as judges rather than ambassadors who make an appeal on behalf of Christ to the sons of the enemy to be reconciled to God. And let me just say, if you spend more time obsessing about and condemning the sins of everyone around you, everyone on your Facebook feed, than you do identifying and putting to death the sins in your own life and your own heart, then your priorities are off. If you are more focused on condemnation and judgment of the people of the world that are, or, that are in the world around you, if you are more focused on pointing out to them how evil and wrong and wicked they are, but you never bring the gospel of grace and freedom available to them by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are not a hero. If you sound the note of condemnation, never leave that note hanging in the air all by itself, but also sound the beautiful melody of salvation. Now it is true, however, that the world we live in is depraved. It is true that the intentions of the human heart are evil. It is true that this world is condemned. John 3.17 tells us the world is already condemned because it does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true that the world we live in is filled with those who are perishing because, as the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But our role in this world is not to add to the condemnation of the world. But for the sake of Christ, out of love and pity and compassion for our fellow human beings, with tears, in hopes that they might turn to Jesus and be saved, to, our duty is to reveal to them their already existing and present state of condemnation. You are condemned right now because you don't believe in the Lord Jesus. But I know the way out. I know how you can be saved. Jesus will save you. Turn to him in faith. Here is the road to salvation. Come to him. Repent of your sins and believe in him. Believe that the Lord, in the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's our role. We are called to pray at all times for the salvation of souls. Oh, may we be like that great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who exhorted his hearers with these words. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertion and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Why? Because there is coming a day when the Lord will say, Enough! And He will send His angels to sickle out unbelievers from the field. But you, fellow Christian, leave that role to the reapers. Jesus has assigned that task to them, not you. And why has he not yet sent those angels? Second Peter tells us, the Apostle Peter tells us this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should be that all should reach repentance. And so why does the Lord allow the wheat and the weeds to grow together in the field? Because He is patient. Because He is gracious. Because He is long-suffering. He leaves the time open for all who would come to repentance. And so your task and my task is not to labor in this field rooting out the weeds, but to see the weeds become wheat. 
Because we know, as Peter wrote next, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Oh, that we would see the world with such eyes. But it seems like for many of us, we love to take it upon ourselves to root out the weeds from the field. Even though Jesus is explicit that this is not our task. So should you go out into the field to gather up the weeds? No, lest in your efforts to do so you root up the wheat along with them. Listen, whenever humans have taken it upon themselves to become weed rooters, we always mess it up. Look at the church throughout history. Every time the church decided, you know what, we're going to root out weeds, people are still today bringing these up as arguments against belief in Jesus Christ, aren't they? There's a story told about Charlemagne, the Frankish king, first king of the Holy Roman Empire, that when he would conquer a land, he would line up the defeated foes at the edge of the water and say to them, you have your choice of water. The waters of drowning or the waters of baptism. That's not how any of us should be. Hear the the Lord clearly. Your role in this world is to proclaim the good news, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded you. And so Jesus here sums up the parable by revealing the ultimate end of both the unbeliever who refuses to repent and believe and those who have turned from their sin and bowed to him as king, lord, and savior. Look at verses 41 and 42 again. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so listen to me here. If you are an unbeliever here this morning, the terrors of this text cannot be overstated for you. The la- right now, the Lord, in His gracious patience, permits you, as a weed among wheat, to grow with the wheat. The Lord permits the wicked and the righteous to grow mingled together in this world, but this state of affairs will not last forever. There is coming a great and solemn day of separation when you, should you refuse the offer of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, should you refuse forgiveness in Christ, you will be gathered out of the world, bundled up and thrown into the fiery furnace. In this place of eternal destruction, in this fiery furnace, the Bible tells us there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now why is that? Because the fire in this furnace is, according to Jesus, unquenchable, as he tells us in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Not only is the fire unquenchable, but it is eternal, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 41. And when speaking about the final judgment, he will say to those who refused his gracious offer of salvation, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And as we see in Revelation 20, verse 10, this this place of eternal torment is a place that sees the wicked tormented day and night forever and ever without any relief. And the absolute holiness and righteousness and justice of the Lord, the person of the Lord, who he is by his very nature, demands nothing less than this dispensation of wrath forever upon all who reject him upon all who go to the grave with their sins still remaining on their own heads. But the Lord also, because His holiness demands such a devastating penalty, sent His one and only Son. Because God is love, He showed that love to the world by giving His only Son, that whoever believes in Him might not perish, shall not perish, might not endure this eternal torment, but instead have eternal life. Jesus came so that instead of receiving the penalty required by the Lord's holiness, he takes it upon himself at the cross and deals with it for everyone who turns to him in faith. 
The penalty is paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. Which means that this awful place of weeping and gnashing of teeth for you, if you believe in him, is not your ultimate destination. But you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, when the angels come, you will be gathered up and brought into the master's barn. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. You will receive the abundant joy and blessing of eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. This time and place of joy with the Lord Jesus Christ is the place of your maximal joy, the pinnacle of your delight. To such a quantity, quality, and degree that you have never experienced before and you will experience it forever and ever and ever. And so, pulling back to this day, the Pharisees that were standing before Jesus had already made their choice. They rejected Jesus and so were standing on the edge of a cliff from which the consequences of a fall are utterly terrifying. And in telling this parable, Jesus answered the questions that would be rolling around in the disciples' mind concerning the end of the wicked and the end of the righteous. But in this parable, our Lord Jesus Christ also sets down for all humanity from that day to this an ultimatum. Believe in Him and become a son of the kingdom which brings to you the most wonderful blessing of eternal life, or refuse and remain a son of the evil one, where your ultimate end will be one of weeping and eternal torment. The day will come. The day is fast approaching when Christ will send his angels to gather up the wheat to be burned and the wheat to be brought into his barn. And at this moment right now, which will you be? Are you wheat Or are you weed? Hear the words of the proverb in closing. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So again, to whom do you belong? Are you walking on the path of the righteous or are you living the way of the wicked? The answer to that question has eternal consequences or eternal blessings. And I pray to the glory of our Lord that you make the right decision. Father, we praise you and we thank you for these parables of warning. I thank you for the ultimatum that you set before us. I thank you that you speak to us in your word and let us know exactly what is going to come to pass You set out the penalties and the blessings for us to consider well before the time comes. And in your grace and in your patience and in your long-suffering, you provide us time to repent. So I pray that repentance would be the response of everyone who hears, who is here, who is watching. Repentance would be the response of every single person into whom this message, into whose ears this message comes repentance and belief, and eternal salvation. And we pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.